0: Territory to our circuit two consciousness is essentially the realm of control. Primal basic emotions and the one that is tied to all this territory stuff and dominance stuff and aggression stuff is that of anger. Anger is the emotion of pushing things away and asserting your boundaries. So people who have trouble experiencing anger very often feel like the world is dominating them. Anytime you feel dominated, your testosterone levels drop and it feels shitty. So the actual, the most important thing is not brute strength, is the ability to organize a group, which means people have to trust you. What really is the root of dominance is decision-making. But the leader essentially is the person that other people are willing to have make the decisions for them. Being willing to make your own decisions essentially is what makes you a dominant person. First, can you make decisions for your own reality? In terms of social games between people, especially between males, um, if you get to the point of conflict, someone has shown either unnecessary aggression or someone has shown weakness which inspired the predator and the other person. For one's self-esteem around their boundaries and around power, and especially for men, one of the best things to do is train your body. Humor is always the best weapon. The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library enjoy the show. And we're live. Great. Never know when these things start. Okay. Uh, Today's episode is on territorial psychology and dominance hierarchies. This uh, was inspired initially by different threads that people started in the Masculine Underground Forum, the Facebook group. So in the last like couple months, uh, there have been posts around the meaning of alphaness, alpha male. Someone posted a great uh, thread about um, inadvertently getting into fights or dominance play games with other men. Uh, I think this applies to everyone across the board, I mean uh, uh, everyone experiences power dynamics and we're going to speak about social hierarchies and the functions of emotion um, but it does se- seem to apply more to men and we're going to talk about how uh, these this type of social psychology is uh, runs on the androgen system the our testosterone system which of course women have as well but is seems to affect male emotions male experience a little bit more um so when we speak about aggression uh, we're also gonna we're, inadvertently these last couple episodes i've been going backwards in timothy leary's eight circuit consciousness model at least for the first four circuits um three weeks ago we did one on social construction of reality that was circuit four Uh, Last week we did one on um, the reason circuit and the semantic circuit and like the labeling uh, circuit, uh, third circuit of reality um, and how we construct reality through language. Um, Now we're going down to our paleomammalian brain. And if you did catch the episode on social constructions of reality, uh, I will be referencing or you might recognize certain common themes because if you remember, if you did see that episode before, I said something like... um, Dogs have hierarchies, whereas humans have societies, human society working off of our paleomammalian social mechanisms. We're actually going backwards now to see that even though we are more complex beings than dogs and other mammals, we have societies, we have specific roles and ways that we interact as large groups, Um, at the root of it all, we still have that mammal brain, we still function on some level with dominance hierarchies, and in certain areas of life it becomes very clear, and I'd I'd argue, particularly in all-male groups, um, this shows up more, because uh, uh, whereas Circuit 4 is a little more nuanced and applies to everyone, Circuit 2 particularly runs on mechanisms that we would call masculine parts of the consciousness, the androgen system, but also um, just also the toddler brain, which we're going to speak about. no major announcements today. Have some podcast guests coming up. I mean, if you're on my list, you'll, you'll catch that. Um, I don't know. Life updates, my chickens are growing really well. Oh, actually, I'm gonna talk about my chickens because my chickens, uh, you, can de- you can see the pecking order amongst them and we're gonna speak about pecking order. And it's very interesting. The word pecking order gets thrown around a lot when we speak about uh, dominance hierarchies with humans. Um, I have eight chickens right now, and I actually can see the pecking order. Like they they peck each other in an order um, based on uh, perceived dominance, and it's interesting seeing that um, because <clears throat> our circuit two consciousness, even though obviously chickens are much more primitive than us, we have a version of that in us, and uh, a lot of our emotional reality is based on that. Circuit two, uh, the paleomammalian emotional territorial brain, uh, develops during toddler. Uh, Alex, I just want to say that um, I'm going to break up this episode into two uh, parts. First, we're going to speak about um, circuit two and paleo-mammalian brain and the toddler consciousness and how it works and what it has to do with territory, uh, the functions of emotion, um, how it relates to the, the androgen system, uh, and leadership, and how leadership, especially male leadership, has shifted um, as we've gone away from uh, more primitive hierarchies into more complex societies and how. Um, Some of our emotional reactions as advanced, civilized, civilized, in quotes, adults, um, still run on these primitive systems. And then the second half of the episode uh, is going to speak more about practical application on how to actually play the hierarchy. So of all the lower circuits, um, this is one that I personally probably have had the most uh, negative imprinting or imprinting that I've had to work through uh, consciously as an adult. I grew up pretty beta, as far as you know, as far as uh, most people would define as beta versus alpha. Um, this became apparent, and I was always quiet and shy. But it, it became apparent, like in middle school, and then particularly in high school, where um, you know there's obviously people going through puberty, testosterone becomes a big thing, and I, as a freshman, I would get robbed. A lot. I, mean, I I went to school in inner city Brooklyn. It wasn't the, the absolute worst place in the world, but you know, people would get robbed, especially if you're a freshman. Obviously, a freshman, smaller human being. We're going to, have to speak about physical size and how this relates and aggression. But I, I remember the very first time, and almost all my friends got robbed as freshmen. But I had the record, like for more than any of my friends. I think I might have gotten robbed like like eleven or twelve times as a freshman, like some like crazy number. And I. And I re- and a lot of times it was like in broad daylight, and I remember the very first time I got robbed, I was on my way to school, it was like maybe 9 in the morning, um, I just walked from the subway junction, you know, it was maybe like a, a 10 minute walk to my school from public transportation. And I remember uh, it was a cold morning, and I saw like these two guys, I mean, they're, I was 14, maybe they were like 17, they probably went to my school, uh, definitely thugged out in appearance, um, but I remember them talking, and I heard one guy say to the other guy, oh, hold on, I'll catch up with you later. I'm going to rob this person. Use a different word. Um, and uh, and I, it's a significant moment because he wasn't even thinking of being a perpetrator or, or robbing anyone, but he saw me, and then something about what I was giving off made him want to rob me that day, right? And it was interesting because like that was uh, – the, this very first time, you know, he was, you know, he put his arm around me. You know, he was like demonstrating his strength. Obviously, he was a lot bigger than me. And then I wasn't sure. I'd never been robbed before. Not like, I mean, I'd never been robbed before, so I wasn't sure how I wanted to respond to this. Also, it was broad daylight, and people were walking by, and I was like, does no one see that something's going on? Like, how come no one's doing anything? Um, and he asked me for my money. I wasn't sure that I wanted to give it to him. And then he described what it would feel like for me to have a cold knife go into my guts on a cold day. And I was like okay that that sounds pretty bad whether or not he has a knife I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna give my money up I had maybe eight dollars on me or something I started giving him my money he grabbed it and then something in me could tell like it just had I had the thought while my my hand was out I was like I think he's bluffing and I held on to the money and we had like this like pulling match in the middle of you know like you know, he, he'd, he'd almost successfully robbed me and we, were, we had this pulling match, he had this pulling match and I could see in his eyes that he was now afraid that I was fighting back, or any, I was resisting. And it was like this this weird moment where I was like running through my head while I'm pulling with this guy, like should I give him this money, it's like $8, I really don't think he's going to stab me but what if he does, I was like calculating the expected value in this moment. And then finally I was just like whatever, I let it go, it was like $8. bucks, and then, um, It was an interesting moment because I I feel like that moment imprinted me in some way because every other time, one, I seemed to attract people robbing me a lot that year ever since then and I never put up a fight after that. I kind of just had this automated response like someone threatens me, I take out my money, I give it to them and I keep walking. Sometimes I wouldn't even stop walking. Um, But this did this build on me and like, you know, as we're going to speak about being dominated feels really shitty um, for, for various reasons, for various survival reasons. Uh, it actually depresses your nervous system. And um, uh, later on after high school, I'd would, I would be very like upset about this. Um, and I developed what we would call a chip on my shoulder. I was very I was like overly aggressive, probably to make up for all those times that I had baited out. Um and I became like, uh, I mean, you could call it little man syndrome or something in college. I was kind of a little more aggressive than I had to be all the time. I was a little I was quite aggro. But I mean, I think that's an evolutionary stage. And at a certain point, I got to, like, I was trying to transcend the dominance hierarchy. I was like, this is so, like, immature. I was very judgmental of it. It's like, can't, can't I think uh, higher than that? And But it kept coming up over and over again for me where as I started studying dating, I was working for this dating coach for a while. And he would take me around to, like, conferences. I was, like, his assistant. And he'd introduce me to other dating coaches. And people would be like, oh, well, how's this game? That was, like, a common uh, that was a common phrase in that world. And my coach would always be like, oh, yeah, his game is is... Pretty good, but he doesn't have a dominant bone in his body. Like dominance was always a thing that was like thrown in my face like you are not dominant. Um, and it wasn't until you know if you caught the episode on the matriarchal cults, when I was in this a, a-, a hunch for like hyper hyper feminine community where I was like, Finally I found a world where like I didn't think in the term toxic masculinity, but that's kind of describing my worldview at the time. It was like, finally I can escape this whole thing where everyone's chest beating, it has to be the alpha male. Finally I can relax. But even there, even in a matriarchy, I was constantly getting the feed not constantly, but eventually I was getting the feedback a lot, especially I was on this team of like four young women and myself. I was constantly getting the feedback that you're not dominant enough with them. Like like the women here are not um are, are not being able to settle because like you're the you're the masculine here and you need to be dominant. And only then did it did it click in my head that this whole idea of dominance is not the zero-sum game where you have to fight each other necessarily, right? That It does devolve into that sometimes. But there's a, a, an important function of power dynamics, and that is uh, you're actually giving a service to the group. So i gonna end the story with this this understanding of like when you understand what other people get from benevolent dominance, I mean, and a lot of people have negative connotations around the word dominance, but if you understand what it means to be in the dominance role, whether it's in a in a sexually polarized relationship or in a family or in a team, someone has to take that role. And if you are in a situation where you ought to take that role and you're not taking that role, you're actually failing your group. Or you're fail- I mean if you're a masculine individual, that, that, this is your role. If you're dating a feminine human being who likes being in her feminine, or, you know, or his feminine, uh, and you're not taking the dominant role, you're actually doing a disservice to your partner or your family. If you're a parent, you have to take that role. Anyway, so dominance is a critical virtue for groups, and we're gonna speak about why, this, why power plays exist, why, we, why, why life evolved to have this as a common dynamic um, as social animals. And it is tied to the androgen system, uh, the testosterone uh, uh, perceiving part of our nervous system. Um, so we could call this a masculine virtue. Um, and uh, before we go into the sexualized piece of it, uh, it is, as I mentioned the top of the episode, is tied to circuit two. Um, circuit two is the, the paleomammalian brain, uh, toddler consciousness, and um, this marks in the evolution of life as the um, introduction of emotions. So prior to um, the development of emotions, like the parts of our nervous system that can process emotions, life on earth went as far as perceiving sensation and the other five senses, right? <clears throat> A reptile doesn't feel emotions, doesn't have a part of its nervous system to experience emotions. It has uh, a sensation level uh, we could, which we could call maybe proto-emotions, like it does feel fear, it does feel maybe pleasure uh, from eating something good, but it doesn't have the nuanced emotions, at least that what we would call emotions, where it has uh, uh, this more nuanced content. And um, so we're going to speak about territorial reality too. So. Emotions uh, have a specific function, like this part of our nervous system circuit two developed um, in life uh, for a specific purpose of socialization. So if you, can, if you think about life uh, from the beginning of time, there were single-celled organisms. Eventually, these single cells found ways to evolve to have multi-cells because they found that a multi-cell organism can resist the environment's um, negative forces better, it can resist parasites or predators better, um, bigger, in many senses, was better. Certainly, multi-cell is better than single cell. And what's great about a multicellular organism is now now the cells can be um, uh, specialized. A single cell organism has to do everything for itself within that one cell. A multicellular organism can have cells that do digestion and it has cells that uh, are for, for motion and then cells for consumption and, and whatever. So when it comes to multicellular organisms, uh, we've also evolved, we being life, all organisms evolved, um, in recognizing at least some species that a single organism can get by in life, but a group of organisms working together can again resist predators, resist parasites, um, find food, build shelter better. And this is the introduction of socialization in life. So you can think of all sorts of social animals, even fish who don't necessarily have um, a circuit to consciousness, at least not as developed as mammals, they have something like fish, get together in school some fish at least um, and they have certain benefits from it so <clears throat> the question becomes how does a group of organisms actually interact together so they work together right like in a physical body in a multicellular organism there are signals being sent physically in the body right like signals are electrical impulses are sent in the nervous system like if you touch something hot uh, signals are sent up your arm to your central nervous system to recognize, oh, I gotta pull my hand away. Or I mean, sent to your spinal cord, pull my hand away. Um, if uh, in your digestive system we we have uh, bacteria in our gut, if that bacteria, a certain bacteria that say like sugar grows um, or like uh, populates, it sends signals up to our brain to desire more sugar, so it actually uh, modifies our behavior. And these signals are sent within the body. <clears throat> But if you think of a group of animals, a superorganism as a body of a sense too, how do you send those signals across, right? Um, reptiles can uh, experience the world through the five senses, but how do you transmit that from one animal to another? And that's, the, that's where emotions come in. So emotions are a way of us uh, transferring um, information to other members of our species. So there are two things that come from this. Uh, one is empathy, is that it is The transferring of feeling, right? If, um, If we're a group of meerkats and I see a predator and I feel terror, all the other meerkats around me will feel that I feel terror and they'll also feel terror and they wouldn't have to observe the eagle or whatever the predator is on their own. So we all feel terror together, we all hide. I mean, that's the function of transmitting emotions between social animals. But then as far as organization, how do you get everyone to organize? Yes, we can all maybe feel together on some level But how do you organize a group that all can do all their own things? I mean, you see this in human groups all the time of people like can't, can't, um, it's very hard to make decisions as a group unless you have one person or a certain uh, part of the superorganism, a certain part of the big body that functions as the quote-unquote head, and that's the leadership piece. So for a primitive organism, a primitive set of organisms to organize, the most simple and effective way is to have a dominance hierarchy where there's a specific head who's earned that position somehow, and then there's a body. And then there might be an order in order to decide simple things like who eats first, um, who decides where the where the the pack goes? Um, who gets to mate when there's uh, fertile uh, when there's mating opportunities? Who gets to have that mating opportunity? All of these things are decided through the dominance hierarchy. So just to understand that first is that because like when we look at it in human terms, we, we might always think like, oh, this is like um, this is uh, foolish, you know, this chest beating or the way that these these guys are competing. There's a, a, a deep evolutionary reason for that. It's like our social brains are trying to assess what order we should do things in. Um, I'm going to come back to that. I want to uh, side stuff for a second. There's another function of this circuit 2, paleomammalian brain, because um, it, it develops during toddlerhood. Um, when you're a toddler, if you've if seen toddlers, you know, toddlers go through this uh, phase known as the terrible twos. And um, what a toddler is often doing, a toddler, when you're a toddler, that's when you start to care about socializing. Infants can interact with their parents. They like to interact with their parents, but infants don't really interact with each other. If you ever put two like little babies in a crib, they don't really do a whole lot with each other. It's only when their circuit two starts to develop that they start to care about their peers. And two questions that toddlers are trying to answer when they're interacting with other toddlers for the first time or other people or anything for the first time um, is who or what can I control and who or what controls me. This comes down to this like you know hierarchy is like who should I follow and who follows me. They, they want to know this part of our brain wants to know where they fit in in this uh, you know in this simplistic ordering of, of a social group to know, just to know where they stand, right? Because they don't know, uh, you know, who's in charge, or am I in charge? Like that's basically what a toddler's trying to find out when it's testing boundaries, when it's saying no, when it's checking for territory. So, territory, to the, our circuit two consciousness, is essentially the realm of control. So, you know, mammals, dogs, they care a lot about territory. Why? Because this this physical land. Is mine. It is is the area of land where I have influence, which means this area of land where I have access to the the food resources. I can eat the food. I can eat the prey animals that are there. Um, it's also for for many mammals, especially um, this the territory is where I have access to sexual resources. Right. So like gorillas will fight to the death over a certain piece of land. Um, kind of like you can see in in human, modern human warfare, or warfare throughout humanity, fighting over land, why? Because it also gives you sexual resources. The gorilla that fights for the land in a given part of the jungle can now mate with all the females in that land, which is why his genes make it so that he's willing to fight to the death over that, because that's the only way that his genes will pass on. So for humans, we don't necessarily think in terms of, territory we do still think in terms of territory, we see about all the the wars fought over lines on the map, um, but the way this translates, you could say metaphorically, is that when we think about dominance, it's not always about physical space, although it often comes down to this. But it's really what matters about physical space is this is the part of this is this is the area of reality, the part of reality that I can control versus other people control for me. So, like when you feel dominated, it's normal to feel really small, like you can't really affect anything, like my realm of control is really tiny. When you feel uh, when you feel dominant. It's like, oh, my, my, my realm of control is huge. Um, the emotional territorial circuit's also tied to Freud's anal stage. I, I don't, I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, so I, won't, I won't go too deeply into it, but um, animals uh, mark the territory with their excrements. Uh, toddler also learns to control, and one of the first things you, you you do to learn how to fit into a social order is to learn how to control your excrements, so you're not pooping your pants. Um, yeah, you know, we talked about that. Uh, okay, so back to uh, the actual dominance hierarchy. So, uh, from our infant circuit, the infant circuit has one dimension. It seeks. Uh, it's either trusting, like it seeks things that are safe, or it's not trusting. It seeks. It goes away from things that are dangerous. And um, that's one dimension of experience on the infant level. The toddler level introduces another axis. You can so you can imagine it as a horizontal axis and a vertical axis of dominant and submissive. Again, trying to see um, who can I tell what to do or what do I control and who tells me what to do, who controls me. So if you imagine this, uh, these four quadrants, you end up at, on these first two circuits of consciousness, you basically have four areas of um, trusting dominant, hostile dominant, hostile submissive, trusting submissive. And uh, I think on a very primal level, this is just an interesting way to look at groups. I mean, pretty much any group, social groups, um, uh, pretty much anything that isn't so advanced to have clear distinct roles so you can think of social uh friend groups or groups of coworkers uh, sports teams you often see this dynamic where pretty much everyone falls into one of these four boxes in a given situation um the dominant trusting person is kind of like a benevolent parent um the hostile dominant person is kind of like a tyrant a tyrant or a saboteur they're trying to always like um, get what they want for themselves at the expense of other people. They're the, they're the type of people we typically think of of negative dominance, like they're dominating other people for their benefit. There's the not trusting uh, submissive, uh, who's kind of like the, um, the, the in, in group psychologists known as a control problem. They're the person that is giving a hard time to whoever's in charge. And then there's the trusting submissive or the friendly submissive who doesn't want to be in charge, but they want they want someone to be in charge, and whoever's in charge, they will follow that person. And in recognizing this, you can kind of see how to interact with people in a given group. Um, uh, and, but what often happens, and this is why I think most of us have a negative view of dominance, or culturally we have a negative view of this idea of dominance, is that if you imagine one of each of these four types of people on an island together, and I brought this uh, idea up in the Prometheus Rising episode, but... If you imagine one of these four people, what would often happen is the two dominants would compete to, to see who's the dominant, but the friendly dominant, because they're friendly, because they're trusting, also cares about group synergy. So what would probably happen is that the friendly dominant would end up deferring to the non-friendly dominant because the non-friendly dominant or the hostile dominant will not be, settled, will not be happy unless they are in charge because um, they were, they expect someone else to, <clears throat> they expect themselves to be in charge. They don't trust anyone else to be in charge. So that would end up happening. The friendly submissive would probably feel uncomfortable until someone was in charge. Like they'd be anxious until like you you two dominants, just tell me who to follow. And then the the hostile submissive or the not friendly submissive won't be happy regardless. So they almost don't matter. Whoever's in charge, they're gonna complain about it, probably. Um so uh Anyway, this is what happens often in groups, which is why very often you'll see like tyrannical leadership. And we're going to talk about this uh, in a second as we speak about how uh, leadership has changed from as, as we developed, as we went from being nomadic societies into um, settled agricultural ones. Um, okay. All right. So back to the, the male, the, like what we would call the masculine side of this, and this refers back to, I mentioned this in the Father Nature episode from a while ago, or the Father Wound episode, this is uh, Eric, uh, Eric Neumann's thesis on how um, this part of the consciousness is the masculine consciousness. Like He argued that patriarchal society is kind of inevitable because um, as we develop to have this kind of brain where we recognize power, it was driven by the androgen system, by testosterone. So very naturally, men or anyone who has a lot more testosterone and androgen receptors in the nervous system certainly would be better at these games, right? You think like, I mean, stereotypically we don't think of women making aggressive power plays against each other. We have all this language for describing what power plays are like, dick measuring contests, chest beating, is all this like male, uh, male association. Uh, so the androgen system is actually what throws us into the desire to compete because on, on a genetic level, Um, our genes recognize, at least, that males are expendable. Um, And it was a controversial idea, but um, uh, uh, genetically they are. So if you think of this, um, I I might've mentioned this before in another podcast, but um, in the animal kingdom, in in species where status matters and status affects uh, your mating opportunities, like chimpanzees are a great example. So in, in chimpanzee culture, an individual chimpanzee's status or social status and ability to have mating opportunities is determined by the status of his mother. It's a somewhat matriarchal society. So it's actually a better strategy if you're high status to be male because a male you know, produces unlimited sperm. So if you have a high status mother, it's better to be a male because then you could have all the mating opportunities. Whereas if you have a low-status mother, a low-status male will get almost no mating opportunities because in, that, in a chimpanzee society, you don't necessarily have to fight for it, it's kind of determined at birth. Um, whereas um, a female, no matter what status she is, she has one womb, she's gonna get pregnant and she's gonna pass on her genes no matter what. So you can see this in chimpanzees, um, high-status females tend to have a lot more male children than female and low-status females have a lot more female children than male, uh, because that's what gives them the best opportunity. Somehow, I don't, I don't know the mechanism. Somehow, their bodies know, uh, I guess, what sperm to accept or not um, on some level. Like their bodies know what 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 status they are, probably due to their hormone uh, balances. Um, So this idea that males are expendable, like this androgen system, is willing to throw us into competition to get that higher uh, level of status, because if we don't, we're not going to mate. And uh, Camille Paglia has this quote, I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head, but something around um, how testosterone makes us willing to throw ourselves into the unknown, into dangerous situations, um, and take on the challenges of life. Because on some level, it knows that if we don't compete, and we don't, find a way to win in life metaphorically or literally uh, we're not going to pass on our lives. So it's like from from our genes perspective, it might as well throw us into battle. And so you can see a lot of male virtues around glory, around chivalry, around taking on challenges, around honor. Um, These are all like very testosterone driven behaviors, right? Like someone with no testosterone in them is not going to even conceptualize why you would want to die on the battlefield or take on, uh, fight to the death over something, whereas someone driven by testosterone or or cultural values based on testosterone, like the Bushido Code or or simply the, the concept of honor, right? Um, like, what is honor exactly? Honor is uh, an ideal that you should do this thing, even if it's not beneficial to you, or even if there's a huge risk to you. So yeah, uh, being willing to put lay down your life to defend your land, right, is a very... It is an honorable uh, thing. Uh, Being able to keep, uh, being willing to keep your word even when it's inconvenient to do is kind of a masculine virtue, this idea of integrity. Why? Because um, it's tied to this idea that you need to uphold certain things even if they're uncomfortable uh, in order to have higher uh, social or higher uh, sexual opportunities. Um, So anyway, we're talking about leadership in a second. I'm kind of going back and forth between this uh, the male side and then the territory side. I kind of yeah, I kind of did my notes in two columns, so I'm going back and forth. Um, I want to go back to territory for a second because obviously the, the thing in the animal kingdom that males seem to fight over the most is territory. As I referenced, the territory is representation of the part of reality that you have influence over, and you know another uh, aspect of this uh, you know the, the development of emotions in life. Um, is one of the most primal, basic emotions, and the one that is tied to all this territory stuff and dominance stuff and aggression stuff is that of anger. Matai has this great talk, um, speaking—I mean, speaking about many things—but he, he references the the purpose of anger, right? Like, on the most primal level, I mean, you're, you're probably one of your first experiences of anger is when you felt someone was unfairly t- uh, controlling your space right? Like you had, you had maybe a bottle or a candy or something in your realm of control. Even a toddler has a sense of like, this is my realm of control and someone took it away. Kid gets angry or you're playing with your toys and then someone gets up in in your space that you feel is your personal space. Immediate reaction is anger, right? Anger is the the, um, emotion of pushing things away and asserting your boundaries. Um, So people who have trouble experiencing anger very often feel like the world is dominating them it's interesting, um, in Chinese, the language, uh, the word for anger is yang qi, I, don't, I might be saying this wrong, yang qi, uh, yang as in like, yin and yang, like the male side, like the outward like forceful balance of energy as opposed to yin, yang, and then qi, which is like, I mean, this is a mistranslation, but the way we understand it in the West is like life force energy. Um, so like the word for anger is male energy, or like the word for anger is like uh, forcing outward energy. Yang energy is the word for anger. So it's interesting when you, when you look at that, it's like anger is the emotion of territory. So anytime that you feel dominated, what's the natural reaction? I mean, time you feel someone's in your space, the, the reaction is anger. So for a lot of men, especially, reclaiming their uh, ability to... Uh, not feel dominated to, to reaccess that part of their self-esteem. Someone just posted something in the masculine underground group around um, not being able to like, uh, access his primal side. It, anger is, is it, right? Anger is the most uh, basic form of being able to assert your boundaries um, and prevent people from pushing on you. Because if you don't, especially if you are a, a man, if you're biologically a guy, if you're masculine in... In your, in your behavior, which probably means you have a lot more androgen receptors, meaning receptors for testosterone. Anytime you feel dominated, your testosterone levels drop and it feels shitty, right? I mean, obviously being dominated feels bad to anyone, but to someone who has very few androgen receptors, um, fluctuations in testosterone probably don't make a huge difference, as opposed to someone who has many androgen receptors because testosterone has driven their behavior their whole life and through puberty, most men have certainly way more, I think, like four to eight times more antigen receptors than women. Um, so fluctuations in testosterone have a huge effect on mood. So for a guy, uh, you know, it's uh, easy to, to judge a guy of like, oh, he's being insecure. And we're going to talk about security in a second. But when someone does something to you that causes your testosterone to drop, it feels so much worse, which is why you often see men seemingly overreacting to uh, shows of disrespect because that's their primal nervous system saying, like, if I let someone take this territory on me, I'm gonna get wiped out. Um, okay, we'll speak about leadership and then we're gonna shift into uh, how to actually play this stuff. So, leadership is, uh, so if we go back to the, perp- the role of the, of dominance um, in, in a social group. If you think of a superorganism, there has to be a head, there has to be a head to the body, right? You can't have 20 different heads. It's the whole Uh, too many cooks in the kitchen thing, right? Someone has to be the decider. Even in a loose group with like not defined roles, even in a group that like is trying to come to a decision together, there has to be someone, some point, who at least facilitates the decision making, right? On the most basic level, the function of dominance is to be the head of an organization, which means making decisions. So in like, let's say like a group of your friends are planning a a trip together, you might not think in terms of like, this person's the dominant one, This, per- and we're all uh, su- submitting. I mean, that's probably uh, the connotations of that kind of language maybe don't fit the situation. But for, the, for the, the vacation to be planned amongst the group, someone has to take the lead of making the decision. Maybe they try to make the decision with everybody's input, but it's like, okay, we're going to this hotel on this day. Uh, this is the loose itinerary, or this is what we're going to do, or this is the focus of this. Whoever that person is... Uh, is doing a service to the group, right, because they're making a decision, finally, we can move forward. There's some sort of initiative. That person, in this sense, on the social level, is the dominant one, um, as opposed to submission is essentially following along. So you could think of this as leader-follower. Uh, the words leadership and dominance uh, have different connotations for most people, um, but at, at its root. So where a, leadership and dominance were kind of the same thing, where it was... Pre- in pre-agricultural societies, and I'm referencing um, something Darryl Cooper speaks about in his podcast, hopefully I'm going to have him on to talk about these ideas more. Uh, in, in pre-agricultural nomadic societies, uh, they had a sense of leadership, of course, but it was a different, there were different associations with leaders in these nomadic, egalitarian societies than we do in our modern civilization. Like in modern civilization, oh, I'll talk about that in a second. So back in um, nomadic societies, The idea of honor was a lot more uh, important because there were no contracts, there were no police to enforce things for you, there were no courts. Like if you're just a a roaming band of of nomads, uh, how do you decide who's the leader, right? You might decide through who's the strongest, right? Who's the the male that can beat up everyone else, they can be the leader. But as social animals, especially as uh, developed social animals, the humans are, if one, if the if the biggest baddest male was beating everyone up and he was just a jerk to everyone, well, all the other males, even if they're weaker and stronger, would gang up on him, right? So the actual, the most important thing is not brute strength, is the ability to organize a group, which means people have to trust you. In a nomadic society, there's no uh, laws or police or military to enforce your command of the group, so for you to actually be the leader of a of a a loose society with absolutely no laws people have to see you as honorable people have to trust you you probably do have to also be strong either physically or mentally in some force because they want to follow you into conflict but you have to be trustworthy so uh, Darryl Kupo speaks about this in his podcast and how in honor cultures like in in uh in societies to this day where they don't really have um a legal system to fall on or a police force like if you think of like uh, Arab tribes in the desert or in, in the mountains of Afghanistan, they have this very deep um, honor culture. Or in the American South, um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Blink and how the American South has this deep uh, honor culture because the American South was settled by people from Northern Europe in the highlands where everyone was a shepherd and you had to have this like sense of honor and this um, willingness to, one, to keep your word because otherwise people won't trust you because there's no laws out there, um, but also the, the capacity to do violence because of people Think, oh, I can steal this person's sheep and he won't retaliate. They're just going to steal all your sheep, right? So you have to have this reputation of telling the truth, and if someone wrongs you, you, you punish them, and that's the only way. That's the only effective strategy to not have all your livelihood taken away from you. This was true. This is true in any situation where there's not a state or governing body to um, to uh, to police you. Uh, someone's asking which podcast mentions honor culture. It's a podcast I've been binging called Martyr Made. Um, He has a great series um, on the Israel-Palestine conflict. He speaks about honor culture, specifically about Arab culture versus Western culture. And then he also references it in this great episode on human sacrifice, I believe, um, or or cannibalism, something around that. Um, So so also with these uh, nomadic tribes, a lot of the time this group was organized around kinship, like they were actually related to each other um so they actually knew each other these groups had less than 150 people in them typically so everyone knew the character of whoever they decided to have the chief and this was really important because um if there is there's no there's no court system right so if two members of the tribe are having a dispute over like whose food is what or something social or something in relationship and they want to go to someone some authority who will settle it for them who will mediate it for them if they don't trust the chief to keep his word if they don't trust his um, if you don't trust that he's not gonna do it to benefit himself, like he's not selfish, he's generous, he's fair, um, he, he actually keeps his word. If they don't have that perception, then the, the their mediation system's not gonna work. Like they have to trust this person, which is why in hyper-masculine societies, keeping your word is so critical, right? Because even though um, modern Western society does not have an honor culture, um, like we all rely on contracts and a court system, and if someone does something wrong, we can call the police. Uh, on a primal level, we still feel this to some degree of, uh, if if a, specifically if a man is not keeping his word, we don't trust him. Uh, we don't believe like we. It, it is a, a male virtue because if a if a, in, in these pre-agricultural societies where violence was kind of the only policing force, if we couldn't trust a person to do what they said, then we had to be on our guard, right? If like someone said, oh yeah, like I'll 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 drop off this food if you drop off my food. Uh, if we don't trust his word, we have to like be like, okay, if he doesn't do it, I might have to fight him. I might have to kill him. Like It always comes back down to violence because we are still animals. Um, however, the big shift was that when we moved into agriculture and we started settling and we started being able to demarcate our physical properties and put up walls and eventually... Um, form into states and nation states with a police force that can do the violence for us, or we can you know we can put things on uh, pieces of paper called contracts, and then if someone violates it, we bring it to some body that will now enforce it for us. Once that started to happen the, the 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 necessities of leadership changed whereas you no longer had to be generous to be king. you no longer had to be trusted to be king. These things were nice, but what really mattered is that you had an army that was willing to enforce things because now at this point in uh, agriculture and as we spoke about last week in circuit 3 mythologies we were now connected over much larger groups than our than our familial ties than our kinship ties than our social ties so like very often a villager didn't know the king personally they didn't actually I mean they might know his reputation but they didn't have a real relationship directly with the king so the king could totally be a tyrant and the king also had an army that can just enforce things and they didn't have to actually trust the king necessarily which is why you know contracts eventually developed um, because if you're not if you're not having a, a direct bond with someone where you're trusting their ethos or their character, you can just there's no there's no there's no uh, uh, felt reason of why you need to uphold a promise anymore. Um, so th- the shift here is that there's no more reliance on empathy. So we mentioned the beginning as circuit two developed in life. There are two things, right? There's empathy, which we could say like the feminine side of of circuit two. And then there's dominance hierarchies, which were the masculine side. And when we shifted as 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 humans into settled agricultural societies, we no longer had to rely on empathy so the instead of these two things balancing each other out, like the oxytocin driven social connection and the testosterone driven power uh, power uh, power order or dominance hierarchy, they used to keep each other in balance once we moved into agriculture you didn't need empathy anymore and then, and then now this is where we have tyrannical leadership as a thing right um, Prior to contracts and cell society if if the chief started being an asshole, everyone else would just depose him or kill him or something. Um, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna end a little with uh, with like how to actually play the dominance hierarchies. I have a couple principles. I think five. Um, <clears throat> all right. First is that as I mentioned before, what really is the root of dominance is decision making. So I mean essentially. The, the core of leadership. We have all these other associations with leadership of what a leader should do and what good leadership is. But the leader essentially is the person that other people are willing to have make the decisions for them. Because when, other, when a group of people get together and have one point that makes their decisions for them, they are now functioning as a body. If, if, you think of a bu- if you imagine like the cells in your body all decided to do different things, they didn't have some centralized thing that was guiding them together, you wouldn't be a body anymore. You would just, just be a bunch of cells. So first, when it comes to your own uh, sense of dominance or security in this, uh, instead of thinking of dominance plays in that, is like, are you making decisions within your own reality? Because a lot of what um, has someone defer their power to other people, it happens actually many stages before what we might call a power play or people trying to alpha each other, right? Um, Because actually when when, um, someone started a thread of like, Constantly getting into like these headbutting matches with guys, and, like what the deal was with that. And I was arguing there's some there's a few stages before conflict ever happens um, that kind of determines whether someone thinks they, I mean, un, will unconsciously try to challenge you or not. But before we get to that, um, being being willing to make your own decisions essentially is what makes you a dominant person. First, can you make decisions for your own reality, as opposed to letting other people make decisions for you? So. We spoke about in circuit in the circuit four episode two episodes ago of when you let other people when you when you just go along with society's narrative you start to feel disempowered because you're not actually making decisions for your realm of control. As you first develop your um, your willingness and ability to make decisions for what is within your immediate reality, whether it's what you do with your life, what you do with your day, or what you do with your attention, that's the that's a, that's the huge danger of being on phones all day because like your phone is like throwing notifications and stimuli at you that make your decisions of what you pay attention to instead of you making active decisions, it it makes everyone feel disempowered because now something else is leading you. and It's even worse that it's not a person leading you that maybe you trust, it's advertising or media notifications or the Facebook algorithm Um, and it's very unfortunate. No one ever feels empowered after looking at their phone for 30 minutes. Being being willing and able to choose your reality and as you to the next step to evolve from that is becoming a dominant person in groups or hopefully a benevolent dominant person in groups, a trusting uh, person is are you willing to take responsibility not only for your shit but for other people's shit and I mean by shit I mean like situation, right? So if you're a parent, obviously, you need to make decisions for your child. If you're the masculine pole in a sexually polarized relationship, there are many moments where for your partner to feel safe and or feminine, you need to take responsibility for the, for the entire territory, for the entire realm of like, this is what we do, which is why the whole, it's like this the, the, uh, the age-old joke of, hey, what do you want to eat for dinner? Oh, I don't know, what do you want to eat for dinner? That's so aggravating to a feminine person because they need the, the, the dominant person to make the decision. It's not even about what the decision is, it's about someone making a decision, this whole idea of initiative. Um, And the more responsibility you're able to take for that situation, ideally the more, I mean, if you're actually acting benevolently, the more people trust you, the more people are willing to defer if like, okay, you can decide this next thing, or you can decide for the group, which it's not necessarily about being top dog, it's about can your group function together, whether it's a relationship or a group of friends for a given situation, or just some people deciding to do a project together, for the group to function together, someone has to, to take the point there. Someone has to be willing to make the decision. And then we think about what leadership qualities are. What are the qualities that allow someone to trust you to make that decision? Obviously competence, you have to know something about the decision, but also are you trustworthy enough that we can trust you to follow through or trust you to have integrity or trust you that you're not gonna make a decision that just serves you? Like I'm willing to follow someone if they're making decisions that benefit myself and everyone else in the group. That's essentially the core of dominance before we get into a uh, competitive place. When things get into competitive plays where, like, guys are out alphaing each other or chest beating or any of those, like, uh, you know, th- those things, that only happens when someone has demonstrated or is, like, seeming like they don't um, have the capacity uh, to, to be the, the, the dominant person in that group. So, like, the idea with the pecking order, or, like, if you look at, let's say, lions who compete for the alpha male, that, that doesn't happen non-stop. It's not like the, the beta male is constantly fighting with the alpha male. They might have one conflict and then it's settled. This is the alpha. He's the, he's the person with the sexual uh, access who makes the decisions for the group. And then the beta finds either it leaves uh, and goes to another tribe or he accepts his role in the group because maybe he doesn't get to eat first and maybe he doesn't have all the sexual resources. But it's actually better to be a part of the group survival-wise um, in some form than it is to be top dog. The only time that they start to challenge the alpha again is when they think he's not strong enough. And then a young buck will, will challenge a young, a young cub, a young, a young male will challenge the top, the, the alpha male, to, to put the best person in charge. As humans, the strongest fighter is not necessarily at all the best person in charge. But that's, that's the only time that people start to challenge uh, whoever is the, the leader in a given situation, especially in, in loose uh, groups where there's not a defined role. Now, uh, conflict of course does still happen. Why does conflict happen? When does it happen? It's when there's some sort of insecurity in the group or as toddlers, like as a toddler goes to the world trying to see who can I control, who controls me. If you're in a situation, this happens with males a lot where someone seems watery or weak or, or maybe there's a guy who's insecure around his dominance or he, he feels like he's, he's hostile dominant, meaning he feels uh, confident in himself but he doesn't trust anyone else he might challenge everyone else to see, are you strong enough to be a leader or do I need to dominate you? And very often, obviously there's insecure, there are insecure people who feel so not trusting, they challenge everyone all the time, maybe because they you know uh, had a bad experience with a parent or something like that, their, their parent was cruel to them and they feel like they're not safe unless they're in charge. Um, most of this is unconscious, right? So like, as I, as I spoke about in the beginning of the episode, I went through a phase where I had a chip on my shoulder because I was very hostile and not trusting. But if you start to recognize them, when someone's making a power play on you, it's because they don't feel safe enough yet in your presence to trust you as a, as a sovereign being or to trust you as a dominant being. Um, they're they're unconsciously testing you just to see where the boundaries are. If you, if you can look at them as like, this is their two-year-old brain just seeing what the boundaries are, it really takes a lot of the pressure off. Because if you react, and we am gonna get into the principles of competition in a second, if you react of like, well now I need to fight you back, you're kind of, Giving them the feedback of, oh, this person is not actually dominant enough. I don't need. I don't need to respect them. I'm probably higher in the dominance hierarchy than they are. So, so even though, as I just mentioned, uh, dominance is in humans has little to nothing to do with physical ability. This part of our brain is what we have in common with dogs and lions and other other social animals. So, uh, it is backed by violence on some level. Like when two two guys, you could take a stereotypical example, get into some out alpha match. There is this undercurrent of like, if this goes too far, we have to fight. Um, hopefully it doesn't go that far, but this is we are still primates, right? It's still in, in the in the in the bottom of that. So just I have a couple of things on that because it, it happens especially if you are Growing out of a, of a beta stage, if, um, if you're in a group of people and like, everyone is used to shitting on you or like dismissing you, maybe not even maliciously, they just don't think much of you because ever since they've known you, you've always deferred to them and you've always let people take up your space or, make your, or, or control the group reality instead of you, as you grow, you might go through this weird, like, you know, awkward teenager phase where like, you feel like because you're now you're trying to assert self-respect or assert your boundaries, um, you might get challenged. Or for someone who's like just growing this in in life, you might give off a vibe of like, hey, come challenge me where people, their two-year-old brain will challenge you unconsciously. So most important thing, and I'd say this is the like first uh, piece is always try to settle out of court, right? If things get to the level of conflict, you've actually um, failed a test earlier. Um, so I mean, the sole settle out of court thing is like, um, I, was, I was reading this thing a long time ago, uh, it had to do with like, the rise of Jewish lawyers in New York on how prior to, to Jews in law, I think it was in the early, in the early 1900s, um, the gentlemanly thing to do amongst New York lawyers was to find a way to settle in a suit before going to court. Like it was considered kind of like barbaric to go all the way to court. It's like we didn't get to settle things honorably. And they're saying how one of the reasons why uh, Jewish lawyers rose to prominence in New York is that uh since they were already kind of the underclass they were seen as like um less important and less uh, uh less respected they were willing to go to court because like in order to show that they were competent they had to be like well if you're not going to respect me we'll go all the way to court so in terms of social games between people especially between males um if you get to the point of conflict you've gone too far like someone has messed up someone has shown that um uh there's not enough mutual respect here for us to just respect each other and not have to go to conflict. Someone has shown um, either unnecessary aggression or someone has shown weakness, which inspired the predator and the other person. So on a, on a concrete level, it might be like, all right, so what, how do you apply this? Um, what matters is not first impressions, what matters is lasting impressions. So a lot of this episode was inspired by someone who brought up a thing about how he's a really short, he's a smaller individual. And he has the perception and maybe right, maybe correctly, that because he's a smaller individual, like when he's online for something, guys will just walk in front of him or people talk over him as particularly bigger guys will just like uh, not respect him or notice him. And he was getting, you know, he was feeling sensitive about this. Like why are these people getting in my face? Or I don't know what his history is like that. And he was sharing about how he's getting like in these almost fights with people all the time because they're not respecting him. And I would argue, that yes, maybe maybe you're, you're, uh, maybe there's something about your appearance that makes people think, oh, I don't need to respect this person, or unconsciously or consciously, I don't need to respect this person. Maybe you're maybe you're quiet, maybe you don't show a lot of affect, maybe you're not super social, so you're not like having people around you, and they might just unconsciously assume, oh, I don't need to respect this person. But what matters is not that first impression. If you get butt hurt about the first impression, then you're only confirming to them that you're in a low status male and don't have to, or not worthy of the respect. What actually matters is your reaction to their first impression. So I had a small example of this, like maybe six months ago or something. Um, I was seeing this uh, woman for, you know, I had this person I was seeing, and I, uh, she introduced me to her roommate for the first time. Uh, this, this younger guy, kind of frat boy looking dude. I mean, at least that was my perception of him at, uh, at first. And when she introduced us, I felt like he, I mean, he didn't even really look me in the eye, he didn't shake my hand, he kind of just like grunted and then turned his attention back onto her. And I know that if this happened when I was in my early 20s, I would have gotten super pissed off. Like I would have felt super aggressive towards him, like this guy doesn't respect me or maybe because he's taller than me, he doesn't think he has to respect me, blah, blah, blah. And then I would have like fed into this narrative of, um, of conflict with him and maybe gotten into a natural conflict with him. If this happened to me when I was a teenager, I would have done the almost opposite. I would have been, uh, I would have just assumed, oh, he didn't respect me, so he must be more important than me on, on that low self esteem level. But in this situation, I did notice, like, I got a little bit annoyed, but I was like, I, I thought basically in these terms of like, oh, this is maybe his insecurity or his toddler nature is trying to test me or something. And I just didn't react to it. And uh, I just went about my day. And uh, I don't, I mean, this is a story I'm constructing in my head. I don't know if this is actually reality, but. The next time I saw him, and every other time I saw him after that, he was super nice to me. Like, he was overly nice, and what it felt like to me, or what I perceive, is that he recognized by my reaction that I was someone that he needed to respect. And he actually felt bad that he didn't respect me on the first thing. So he would, like, almost go out of his way to supplicate, to kind of show him, like, hey, I mean, I I think it was, like, some version of, like, oh, I'm sorry that I disrespected you there. Um, and I don't know the reasons for it. Maybe he heard other things about me from her, or whatever. It doesn't even matter. It's just it might have been all unconscious that he was like, "Oh, I, I shouldn't have dismissed that guy." And when you have that reaction, people have a lasting reaction to you because, like, I'm, you know, I haven't, fiz- I haven't really changed my appearance in a long time. But the way people treat me is very different. And I was trying to like give off this like, what matters is your lasting impression. And if it's hard to think in these terms of like these like reductionist ways, of, like this is how I react to every situation. Simple things like just imagining the space you take up as yours. I mean, this is like kind of like the big man energy. Like if you imagine that space and you don't if you don't, you don't, immediately rush to arms like, oh, I'm getting invaded. I need to be defensive because that only shows your insecurity. If you're like, people are okay. I recognize that it's their toddler nature. I can have compassion for this. That to me is the definition of like actual dominance because such people, you know, if, if you're really established as a dominant lion in the territory, people don't even bother jumping into conflict with you. Like, if you're, if you're getting to the level of conflict, then something's gone too far. Instead, try to settle out of court. Meaning, you know, if you look at dogs, um, when dogs do the alpha thing, dogs rarely get into actual, actually, I, don't know, I don't know enough about dogs, but from what I understand about dogs is that when dogs are trying to see who's the alpha or the dominant, very often is a growling match. Um, from what I've read, uh, whoever actually feels weaker will start to secrete hormones that uh, show fear. And then, and then it's kind of settled. Like once the, the, the beta dog shows fear, the alpha dog doesn't need to fight him anymore. And it's just established, okay, I'm alpha, I'm beta. That's kind of like, they settle before violence actually had to occur. Uh, okay, but I'm gonna say, kind of contrary to what I said, in order to really feel secure, even though um, obviously, if you're getting to the point of fighting, something has gone wrong, all of this is kind of backed in our deep primal unconscious, uh, down to violence. Even with society, in our modern society where we defer to the police and the government to handle our business for us, we defer to the police because the police can do violence for us, right? There is a backing of violence. So my other suggestion to this individual who is having this issue is that if you if you do something that takes away your insecurity around violence, uh, like just knowing that, okay, if things did get this far, I, I can handle it so I don't have to like uh, be overly uh, conflicting up here because I know that I can handle it if it does go too far, it does take away some of that insecurity. And I think for, for one's self-esteem around their boundaries and around power, and especially for men, one of the best things to do is train your body, like take jujitsu, lift weights, take a Muay Thai class, anything that will take away that insecurity. Cause most people, and I talk, I've talked about this a lot before, like when a man, especially when someone who I think has a lot of androgen receptors and testosterone drives their 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 feelings and their uh, self-esteem and their behavior a lot, Um, when a guy is feeling depressed or dominated in life or doesn't have a a large realm of control, like life is making him do things and he doesn't have authority over his own life, let alone other people, um, very often I've spoken to a lot of guys around, you know, what they're really thinking about we go into violent fantasies. I mean, a lot of guys, especially when you feel disempowered, you might have a fantasy of beating up a guy trying to steal a grocery store, or someone challenging you, and just like in the movies, you knock them out. And we have these delusions as kind of a way to take back power. Like our fantasies, our unconscious fantasies, are almost ways of correcting imbalances in our consciousness. And if you're having delusion, if you're having, I should say, um, fantasies, violent fantasies of something, probably you're not experiencing enough power in your life, and. I mean, you can go through all this mental stuff of like, I'm going to apply this and that and these high concept things, but the simplest thing is to start lifting weights and train in a martial art. Because if you know that you are, you have some level of competence, it kind of takes away the insecurity. Because a lot of guys who don't train, who will have this uh, like movie, this superhero movie fantasy of like, oh, I can knock someone out. Like some of my friends, especially when they're drunk at bars, are like, oh yeah, I can knock that guy out. And then you see them punch a punching bag and they punch like this, and like, dude. Like, par- probably part of the why you're so insecure about this stuff is that on some level, you know that you can't handle yourself. You don't know what you're going to do. And it's not about being able to actually fight. Like, anyone who actually has done a lot of sparring in something knows how dangerous fighting is and doesn't actually want to fight. Or, like, they know where they stand. Like, I've done combat sports for a very long time, but I'm also a physically small individual. I wouldn't want to get into a fight with someone who's 200 pounds, even if they don't know how to fight. Just because I know what, what how much those things actually matter. There's no... Delusion um, around what fighting actually is, or this little delusion. So that insecurity goes away. And also, one of the hardest things about fighting, if you've never actually sparred, is this idea of stepping into someone's space. Like, <clears throat> I, I boxed for, I mean, boxing was a huge part of my development of self esteem when I was uh, a teenager. The hardest, I mean, I, I hit the punching bag and I, you know, I was, felt very comfortable with boxing techniques for a long time. But I found it so hard to spar. The first time I sparred, just the idea of stepping into someone's space and hitting him in the face was such like a fall. like I, I felt like this repulsion. Like I couldn't quite do it. Even like I could hit a bag, you know, with the, the, the correct technique. Like there's something about being able to step into someone's space, which comes down to all these things. Like if you really are, uh, I mean, if you're in a fight with someone or if you're sparring with someone in a boxing ring, you need to take you need to take up the ring. That is your realm of control. If you can't step into someone's space you can't possibly fight them or or lead them, right? If you, I mean, this example is like, uh, I like the, there's a scene in the movie Eyes Wide Shut where, um, like, they're at some party and a guy takes Nicole Kidman's glass and just starts shrinking from it and, like, there's almost no word there and then they end up, like, hooking up or something. Like, that action in itself, this penetration of her space and and taking it, which obviously is a ballsy move, it shows that he's willing to enter her space and that was such a, a titillating flirtation, a wordless flirtation in that movie or was shown very well in that movie because to lead someone to take the masculine role in a situation, you need to be willing to take up the space, right? I'm not saying she'd go around dominating people or drinking from strange women's glasses, but that, 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 what that demonstrated in that scene in that movie is that he's willing to take responsibility for her so some part of her body, some part of her was able to relax with like, oh, this guy, this guy can handle the masculine pull for both of us. I can sink into my feminine, which is why that was such a, an attractive flirtation. Um, just realized we're at an hour, so I'm gonna just going to run through these last uh, bits. We talked about decision-making the backing of violence. One last bit on the, the competition. Humor is always the best weapon. Um, humor demonstrates that you can laugh at the situation. You can accept both yourself and the other person. Like If you're getting butthurt about a certain thing someone does to you, and you're not able to laugh at it, you're only showing that you're, you feel insecure about defending your realm. Whereas if you can laugh at something and laugh at the other piece, person and laugh at the situation, it demonstrates that you're not on guard because you don't feel like there's anything a threat, which demonstrates to the other person or signals to the other person, oh, this person must be actually a dominant person that can handle his reality because he's not threatened by my jokes. Which is why between males, it's funny, I had a dream about this last night. I won't, I won't tell it, but... Um, between males, typically when two guys are getting close with each other, they feel comfortable making fun of each other. It's kind of like a sign of like, if I can make fun of you and you can make fun of me and we can both laugh at it, then both of our guards are down. We can trust each other. We don't have to – there's no threat of fighting each other. Um, we don't have to uh, go out of our way to say fake nice things to each other because we actually, we actually trust each other. Like That's the sign of male bonding typically when you can tease each other. And then uh, I mentioned this in the first part of the episode, like this whole idea of honor, it's such a masculine uh, virtue, you know, keeping your word, uh, being respectable, being fair, and it goes all the way back again to this violence thing of like, can you be trusted or do I need to keep my sword up? If I can trust you, I can put my sword down and I can maybe trust you to lead me into lead me into another conflict against other people who are actually our enemy, um, which is why, yeah, I mean, even in today's age where, you know, people obviously are obviously a lot more deceptive with each other. I mean, referencing Daryl Cooper's podcast, he was speaking about how one of the one of the the reasons why um the Arab tribes were able to be uh I mean, I don't want to get into a political thing, but they were able to be taken advantage of so easily is because they lived in this tribal honor culture far more than the West. They didn't rely on contracts. They relied on trusting certain individuals' character, which is why when the British came in and threw up their contracts and changed their mind over things, it was like unfathomable to the Arab people because they lived in a culture of honor whereas like you never went against your word. Like, it doesn't matter what the paper says. You don't, you don't word things differently. Like, you know what, everything's based on direct agreement and trusting the character of different men, so they couldn't fathom that someone would go back on their word. Um, And the last thing I was gonna say, actually this might be a bigger concept than I wanna get into at this moment. So I'm gonna speak about it on a very brief level, this idea of self-failing. Of like every competition, whether it's a game of chess or a man-on-man competition or warfare or the the business world, it's a game of a sort, right? There are parameters for winning. There are opponents. There, there are you know, there are things you can do and not do, right? Like even in the stock market, you can't just like take someone's shares, right? That's not that's not the that's not the game. You can't just you know. I mean, I could get into this more abstractly, but uh, when it comes to dominance plays, if you've gotten to the point of feeling like a, a competition is serious then you've forgotten on some level, you've descended your consciousness down to the circuit two level, where you've forgotten that there's actually a whole world outside of this competition, this finite game. Now sometimes that's important, right? If you're playing a game of chess, and you actually want to have fun playing the game of chess, you actually have to play as if winning matters, right? If you don't care, and you just let the other person win, well then it's not really fun, you're not enjoying the game. But the same token, like if you are, if someone does something that seems like a disrespectful move, and you take it so seriously, like it's the end of the world, and in reality you're not living in the Scottish highlands it's not actually the end of the world you don't have to kill him over it and you, but you forget that then you're actually you're not you're not serving yourself there either which is why when we think about dominance between males very often there's a cultural narrative of like oh that's just uh, inse- those are just insecure men being boys on some level that's true like i mean it is our toddler brain trying to see who's the who's the person who should be leading but this is also—I mean—there are real-world applications, right? Like warfare and uh, protecting your family, and being respected in social situations, and you know, being respected enough to get the promotion or uh, you know, having people not screw you over. All these things do matter, even though we don't live in a world where everyone has to do violence in order to protect their land or their family. Um, anyway, this is a concept called self failing from Finite infinite Games, um, whereas being able to recognize when you've descended into a world where you're taking that seriously as opposed to to popping up and the and the idea is like when you like when you're watching a football game and you act like, and you you act like it matters, and it, and the emotions of whether your your team wins or loses are actually moving you. The reason is that you've veiled yourself, you've pretended like there's nothing outside of this world, and I'm I'm pretend on some level I'm pretending like this is my this is my tribe's army, and if and if the Jets lose, um, my family's gonna get raped and murdered. Like that's like that's why it matters to you when you watch a football game, which makes it fun, right? It gives it stakes. But if you if the Jets lose, or I mean, I, I, I was a Jets, I was a Jets fan. If, if the Jets lose and you feel shitty about it on Monday and on Tuesday and you just feel terrible and terrible, well, then now, you're, now you've veiled yourself a little bit too much. Like there's no purpose to feel shitty on Tuesday because the Jets lost on Sunday, but you might as well enjoy it when you're watching the game. Anyway, that's it. I hope that was useful. And I, I jumped around to different things: emotions and territory, the functions of emotions, empathy being the, the feminine side. Uh, dominance hierarchies being the masculine function we've kind of gotten out of balance in post-agricultural worlds because we don't have the need for empathy anymore because mythology has taken over the role of empathy but now that's that's what what has allowed um, power plays to kind of go out of uh, to be unchecked which is why most of us have a negative view of dominance hierarchies because they're not checked by empathy anymore in western civilization um, I think that's all I got Unless there's any other questions, we have some people watching now. Um, oh, I do have a poll for anyone who's on and whoever whoever listens to this later. Um, Facebook has uh, this thing now where you can like make breakout groups and then uh, get people together. I was thinking about uh, doing this with the on underground, like letting people like get together in groups, and especially now, you know, in COVID times, I'm sure anyone who is interested in men's groups at some point can't actually meet in a men's group. So I was wondering, I mean, for anyone listening to this uh, now or later, uh, let me know. Like, send me a message or post in the group. Would that be interesting to you to like have some sort of periodic meetup where instead of just me talking, as we do with these live podcasts, uh, you can actually have a discussion and share things about what's going on in your life, maybe applications. Maybe there could be an overall theme every week and you can try to meet with people in your time zone. Once a week, I, I mean, I've spoken about the usefulness of men's groups, at least being with like-minded guys who can challenge you and uh, hold you accountable and bounce ideas off of you. It's such a useful thing. And in fact, going back to this pre-agricultural society thing, I would argue, I mean, even though men's groups seem clunky and like some men's groups are super effeminate, which annoy me, but uh, in pre-agricultural society, the way that men bonded is that they would go on a hunt together and they would, at night, they would spend that time around the campfire and they would shoot the shit and share what's going on in their lives and swap advice and, um, hear each other and that's like that was a huge part of uh, a man's social life uh, in the paleolithic and, and early early era- eras and it's kind of been lost in agricultural society because we have our own metaphoric farms and don't have to actually connect anymore um, so yeah if you hear this let me know if that's something that'd be interesting I might organize something all right that's all I got goodbye